welcome to our new series on the Pakistani Couch. Our first series will be exploring and analysing the book series written by the British author Roald Dahl. I'm your co-host, Dr. Farah Khalid, and I am a consultant counselling psychologist and assistant professor in clinical psychology. I have a private practice based in Islamabad and I have around 20 years of experience in clinical work and in providing therapy. Whilst I've specialised in humanistic psychoanalytic psychotherapies, I also weave in cognitive behavioural therapeutic methods as well in my work. And you can learn much more about me in the episode notes, so please feel free to pop in there and learn more about me and my background. I provide teaching, training, supervision for clinical psychology trainees, graduate psychologists, therapists and counsellors. And whilst in my work so far, I have worked with a, a broad range of mental health difficulties and issues. My particular specialism is rooted in what we know as personality problems or um, a difficulty in the sense of self and another term that we use is personality disorders or pathology of the self so that's where my specialism is rooted in. I am hoping to draw on my professional insights so far in the 20 years that I've been practicing and I'd also like to bring in my insights personally being a mother as well so in each episode I'm hoping to sprinkle in some tips for parenting or improving family life so for those of you listeners out there who are parents or are currently in conception or are planning to conceive I really hope that you will benefit from hearing about some of those tips and you'll be hearing me have a conversation with my co-host her name is Fatima Hussain and she is a psychodynamic psychotherapist, also based in Islamabad. She works with a diverse population and is curious about the intersection between mental health and institutional power. She feels very passionately about making therapy accessible and culturally appropriate to the Pakistani context. What I find really valuable in my work is I consider it to be a backstage pass into the human condition and dilemma and I feel really honoured that I'm allowed to share this journey with each of the people that come to see me. They allow me to witness their struggles and they give me permission to help them and I feel very privileged for that opportunity and that's why I'm very, very passionate about my work. We hope that our series will give you some points to ponder, nuggets of wisdom, and more importantly, a deep psychological perspective on everyday issues through the lens of Roald Dahl. We would love you to write into us, especially those listeners who are able to remember their dreams, who are curious about their unconscious life and would like to know more. We would want you to write into us and we can provide you with our psychological insights and our dream interpretations. Please remember that any dream material that you do send us or any other personal content will be kept strictly confidential and it will be anonymized. Apart from that, you can write to us with your comments and any feedback. We'd be delighted to hear from you. You can e- either email us 
on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com or you can tweet us at on the pack couch. We really hope that you enjoy our series. Okay, so um, hello everybody. Today's episode we're going to be diving and dissecting um, the story of James and the Giant Peach. So Fatima, would you like to share with us the story? Sure. Uh, James and the Giant Peach was published in 1961, so it's one of Roald earlier works. And the story is about a young boy named James Henry Trotter, who lived happily with his parents in a house by the sea. And then unfortunately, when he is four years old, he is orphaned unexpectedly. A rhinoceros escapes from the zoo and eats James's parents. And what ends up happening is that he lives with his two cruel aunts, Spiker and Sponge, who, instead of caring for him, treat him very badly, they feed him improperly, and they force him to work. They also keep him from socializing with other children his age. Um, And when James has lived with his aunts for about three years, he meets a mysterious man who gives him a big bag of magic crystals. He tells James to use them as a potion and that potion would change his life for the better. But what happens is when James is returning home with that bag, he stumbles and spills the bag on the ground and loses the crystals as they dig themselves underground. A nearby peach tree in turn produces a single peach which soon grows to the size of a house. His aunts, Spiker and Sponge, build a fence around it and earn money by selling viewing to the t- t- viewing tickets to tourists. And so when, once the tourists have gone for the day, James's role is to clean the rubbish around the beach. And one day when he's doing that, the, the first night he's doing that, he finds a tunnel and he crawls inside and meets uh, these creatures, the centipede, Miss Spider, Old Green Grasshopper, Earthworm, Ladybug, glowworm and silkworm and these creatures and end up becoming his friends uh, what ends up happening is that the centipede cuts the stem of the peach causing it to roll away and crush james's arms eventually they reach the sea and they're just floating till they're surrounded by sharks and then james helps them out by you know using miss spider and her thread and the silkworm also makes some thread and they use that to attach themselves to 502 that's the specific number of seagulls Mm -hmm. that it takes to pull the peach out of the water and it's lifted out and they're just floating through the sky and and they don't notice at that that point but they're crossing the Atlantic and they have many exciting adventures along the way and uh, that's kind of the the bulk of the story they come across the cloud men and they see a a ship underneath um, crossing the Atlantic also and eventually they land in New York City. And the massive beach lands on the spire of the Empire State Building. At first, it's mistaken for a bomb, um, and you know the police and the firemen arrive. But eventually, James tells a story, calms the crowds, uh, and children from New York, he befriends them, and he feeds them the peach. And they all live happily ever after in New York City. And his friends also get jobs, and mm-hmm. Ladybug gets married to the uh, the fireman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of the story of James and the Giant Peach. Thank you, Fatma. That was a very helpful, detailed <laughs> summary of James and the Giant Peach. You're welcome.
just as um, you were telling us the, the story and what happens, um, it really stood out to me that um, this, I think Roald Dahl is giving a really clear message to children. Well, not clear in the sense, I mean, it's through a very comical lens, of course, um, because a lot of funny things um, happen in terms of um, the different creatures that James gets to meet, the grasshopper, the earthworm, and so on and so forth. The way that they interact with each other is quite comical. Um, and later in today's episode, we're going to be, um, you know, dissecting their characters and sort of really looking at um, um, their personalities. So what really um, resonated with me was as a child reading this, for children, it's giving a real nice message about life's journey. And I think it's a metaphor. So when we know that um, the peach, you know, we, we know that James kind of encounters these these creatures, um, there is this giant peach and they're, they're off on a kind of journey and um, they get taken away and they're lost at sea and, uh, you know, sharks come up um, and cloud men um, also further, further, further in the journey, cloud men come and cloud men, Roald depicts them as these shadowy white creatures um, who, what they're actually doing is, so they're kind of like very, they're, they're very, um, well, sort of gigantic in a way because they're much bigger than humans. That's how they've, they've been described. And they're making large white marbles. So they're like, you know, um, out of fluffy clouds. They're kind of making, reminded me of snowballs really, but they're making kind of white marbles and they're chucking them everywhere. And, you know, they're, they, first they make a pile, then I think they throw them. Um, and then they become hailstorms. Mm -hmm. So James and the and his kind of group of creatures uh, encounter these hailstorms. And then after that, they kind of encounter a rainbow. So these cloud men are painting with different colors, like purple, green, blue, so on and so forth. So I, I think we can really understand these events as life's challenges and Life throws many challenges and a lot of crises, and I think children reading that, for example, we see a different perception in the earthworm, which we'll talk about later on. But earthworm, the earthworm reacts to these crises in a very different fashion. The centipede will, the ladybird, um, the uh, spider, and the grasshopper, and the centipede, all these creatures um, are different in the way that they respond and perceive life's challenges. So, you know, when the sharks come, you know, how do they react? And what I noticed actually was, you know, James, mm -hmm. he's a boy, right? And he's lost his parents in a, you know, tragic accident. Um, he's been raised by two um, quite cold-hearted and very abusive aunts. And he's the one who stays quite calm and composed throughout the journey mm -hmm. and then they make him like captain of yeah. the don't they yeah yeah i noticed that also 
And I think that the way that I made sense of it was that he was just so desperate for some type of connection that it felt, you know, that really empowered him to do all of the things that needed to be done in that mm-hmm. um, sort of situation, whether it was to think rationally, or, or maybe it's just Roald Dahl's way of saying, you know, humans are smarter than, than mm-hmm. other creatures, I don't know. <laughs> that's interesting. It could be, that's, yeah. Mm. Mm. Sorry to cut you off, Dr. Farah, please. No, that's absolutely fine. Um, adding to that, that I did have a hypothesis. You know how James is so calm and composed? Mm. Um, they're, they're kind of stuck in the middle of the ocean. Mm. And uh, everybody else, all the creatures are sort of panicking to some degree. I mean, more some are more anxious than others. But um, James actually remains quite, you know, composed. Uh, with a sense of kind of you know we'll get through this let's decide and then I think he comes up with the plan of of um, weaving a thread uh, he asks the spider and the the silkworm mm-hmm. to weave a thread mm-hmm. and then he attaches the thread to the hundreds of seagulls and then that's how the peach eventually gets away from the mm-hmm. middle of the ocean and they get saved basically from the sharks yes and my hypothesis was um, the ocean being in the middle of the sea is actually very symbolic of the mother womb mm. and life. Mm. Well, water is the beginning of all life. Mm-hmm. Water is the that. That's why there is this idea, uh, even in Jungian thought, that water equals emotions. Yeah. So, if any of you listeners out there see water in your dreams, uh, whether it's a tidal wave or a tsunami or even raining or thundering or even dampness, maybe a damp house, anything where you're seeing water in whatever manner, um, I would suggest, you know, think about emotions. Um, so one of the recurring themes that a lot of people have are floods, maybe the tap leaking in the bathroom and that they're trying to, you know, dry it all up. One, one way to understand that is you, you, the dreamer, I guess, the dreamer, is afraid of leaking over with their emotions. Mm. They're afraid of their own emotions being spilled out. Yeah, yeah. And and that uh, kind of water equals emotion thing is also quite uh, prevalent in popular culture. I'm thinking of, uh, it's been a while since I read this, and, and I know you've read it more recently, Dr. Farah, but in Harry Potter, Dumbledore has that thing. Oh, the pun scene? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that also water? Yes. And about emotions? Yes, yes. Oh, that's a nice connection. Yeah. Uh, well, the pensive, you, 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 you put your face in and then, and then like you, you uh, it's a memory, your mm-hmm. memories, and then you go in and you can actually go back to that particular memory. You, yes. you have to pour the memory into the yeah. pensive. Yes, yes, yes. But yes, it's, it's about being there and being, feeling all those emotions, mm-hmm. you know. And it's liquid. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a nice parallel. So... So I, I was thinking perhaps James, the reason, one of the reasons why he's so calm is because he feels at one with the ocean. Mm. Maybe he wants to, it's a way of returning to the mother womb and being at one mm. uh, because he didn't have a, he didn't have a, a care, caring mother figure in his life. I think he was four when he lost his parents. Yes, two. So in his early life. Mm-hmm. Um, so coming back to this idea of life's journey, um, I do think children will pick up something. The astute child um, is likely to pick up, I think, that, you know, there are different creatures, and it is really funny when you read the story, but that the, the child will pick up that, oh, right, so, you know, James is the one who's 
you know, quite calm and he's able to get through these different challenges and crises and being at, door, at the door of, you know, death, mm-hmm. uh, death coming as a visitor and near, it's a near encounter to death, you know, they could have got eaten up by the sharks mm-hmm. um, and so on and so forth. So it, then it makes me think about um, uh, one aspect of, of the story when I believe it's the centipede um, and they, they don't actually know they're in the ocean. So this is the point in the story where um, they're inside the peach and I think James is the one who looks out maybe or someone else looks out mm-hmm. and they don't know that they've actually landed in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And there is, a, uh, there is a part where the centipede is panicking and saying, well, you know, either we're going to starve to death or we're going to drown, or we're going to drown mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being in the sea. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about really painful life decisions that we witness in our work together in the consulting room when people come for therapeutic help. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they ask us questions many a time. Do you think I should leave her? Do you, th- do you think I should take that job? Do you think I should move abroad? Um, any, it's, it could be any life decision, you know? Um, do you think I should, uh, um, you know, do, do you think I should resign? Do you, what, what profession do you think I would be good at? Mm-hmm. Even things, these kinds of questions do spill in, I think, certainly in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the tools that I kind of hold on to is rather than telling the person what they should and should not do, because that's very black and white, mm-hmm. um, and I, I believe it's unethical as well to some degree, mm-hmm. and also psychologically speaking in terms of the person's development, it's not really helping them come to their own decisions. And it, I suppose in some, maybe in a tough sense, there is a part of me as a therapist who wants to be able to Like not 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 save the person. So so even if I foresee, oh God, like if they make if my patient makes mm-hmm. that decision, I can see that. I mean, this is barring abusive situations. Of yeah. course, when there is harm, mm-hmm. then then neutrality does not have its place as a therapist. We can't be neutral mm-hmm. because we have to protect the person. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's a very rare occasion. It doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. So if we put that on the shelf, mm-hmm. and if I can see that this person. Um, is going on to make a, a quite a you know toxic decision. It's going to be you know emotionally not very helpful for this person. Even then, I I am very reluctant because how are they ever going to then learn to live with regret? Mm. That they're not going to learn to live with regret. Mm. So you know like I mean me even in my younger self, parents parents tell children. Um, don't do this or don't do that or don't do you know xyz how many of children how many of teens how many of young adults actually listen Mm -hmm. to their parents advice you so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that therapeutic change or change in terms of the person's evolution of the psyche, Mm -hmm. you know, like if they're going to develop as a person, as a human being, Mm -hmm. protecting them by telling them that this is wrong, don't do that. Mm -hmm. That's just not exposing them to failure. And actually, I'm a massive believer, even as a mum. I mean, of course, I would want to, you want to see as a mother, you would want to see your children doing well, Mm -hmm. of course. But you know, I'm a massive believer in exposing yourself to failure. Make make a mistake, mess up, mm-hmm. and afterwards you can 
live with the regret, but yeah. but learn from it. It's a life's lesson. You can't learn without making mistakes, you know? Mm-hmm. And perhaps others, I mean, you know, others will of course disagree with me and that's absolutely fine. And I can see my critics, you know, saying those critics out there who do value lots of success and achievement and that's fair enough. But I, I think I think for, for, for people who come with these existential dilemmas, mm-hmm. I, I, I take the approach of rather, well, you know, how are you thinking about it? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, do I take that job or not? It's not yes or no. Mm-hmm. It's how are you thinking about it? Yeah. What, do, you, do, you, do you get what I mean? I do, I do. And I, and I agree with you. I think having that experience of making a mistake, failing, uh, owning that mistake is, is actually uh, massively therapeutic, but also essential as a life experience. Uh, because sure, you could want to be successful and hope to be successful, but realistically, what are the odds that that's the only experience you're ever going to have with every relationship, with everything that you do? Not very high. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I definitely, and I think that I was very, I was raised a lot like that, you know, where it was, here's what we recommend and this is what we suggest, but you're going to make your own mistakes. Um, and I did. Um, and I, I don't kind of look back and say, well, maybe some things that I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, I wish people had stopped me or told me not to do that. But um, I think it's, I, I am the, the sum of all of that today. And I don't think I want to necessarily change that very much. Yes. Something you said really, really is so meaningful to me. You said you're the sum of all of that. And if you look at, um, you know, some of the philosoph- philosophers out there, I um, can't think of any names off the top of my head, but if you look on some, uh, some quotes, then a lot of philosophers have argued this, that we are the sum of the choices we make in mm-hmm. our life. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, and that actually shows our character. What mm-hmm. life decisions we make, do we choose freedom? Mm-hmm. Do we choose dependency? Mm-hmm. Do we choose to leave our family behind and do our own, pursue our own passions? Mm-hmm. Do we, do we sacrifice our own desires and um, stay loyal to our family? Mm-hmm. All of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe there is no right decision. I think all of those things, it, it's like you said, it's about the way you're thinking about mm-hmm. it and the process of going through them. Um, mm-hmm. That matters more than whether you got it right or you got it wrong. I think the, the reason why life decisions actually bring up this paradox mm-hmm. is because um, a lot of people, so a lot of people who can't decide or who who don't have the will to take a stand on things. I see a lot of these conditions in my own consulting room. Mm-hmm. You know that they that they people feel stuck. They don't know how to move forward through life. It might be because of various reasons, like family members maybe discouraging them or maybe parental expectations. I see that a lot in this context. Mm-hmm. A lot of parental expectations to. Um, stay with the family perhaps or you know whatever the reason might be it might be to stay with the family's business and carry it on as as one's heir the family's mm-hmm. heir mm-hmm. and those kind of responsibilities um how does one then a lot of a lot of people actually I, I for me what comes up is freedom and responsibility mm-hmm. so i see this a lot in those people who are very dependent um, so when I say dependent, I don't mean normative depend dependency, but dependent to the extent where they're, where they're in over enmeshed relationships. Um, they might like you know ask their parent or uh, 
for example, you know, what do I wear on such and such occasion, or what do you, you know, it, it's like everyday life decisions, if the person, young adult, and even a maturer, mm -hmm. 30, 40s, I've seen this, mm -hmm. I've, I have, I've seen this, I've witnessed this, that they might struggle to make everyday decisions with on their own. Like they, they would have to ring up their mum or their dad. Mm -hmm. Like, do you think I should pay so-and-so? Do you think I should wear this to this mm -hmm. occasion? And that, I mean, again, I have my critics on this, but that, that that's not a move away from, that's not an individuation then. That's just being dependent on other people mm -hmm. for making very, very minor decisions and there are reasons for this because um, a lot of people view independence with freedom, of course, but then with freedom comes responsibility because, and I'm going to say something quite controversial, but, and I, you know, I mean, I've over half my life now, so I'm, I'm in my second half of my life, but, and I've got many more things to learn, but what I've witnessed about, about people, about humans so far, is not, a lot, not many people can actually handle and tolerate freedom mm -hmm. because what do you, either either people go wild mm -hmm. and, and they make, you know, with the freedom mm -hmm. or, or people just avoid freedom completely because for me, it's like freedom equals responsibility because when you're then free mm -hmm. and you have to then take charge of yourself and your own decisions, you can't pin it on anyone yeah. else. Yeah. That's true. That makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I, I also see that a lot in um, people in, say, their 30s and 40s here also. Um, and I wonder if that's part of like the, the culture that we grow up in because um, there there's not a lot of emphasis. Because in some ways, freedom and responsibility also mean... Well, freedom and independence also mean mm -hmm. defiance, right? Like mm -hmm. you are defying mm -hmm. something. Taking sure responsibility is a part of it, but having an individual choice and and uh, living for yourself and, and making decisions for yourself is seen as a, as an act of separation, which is defiance, and and separation can be quite um, pain, it's painful, painful, as well. but also it, it challenges power. Um, so that's another thing that that that's so rich because when you said that it does challenge so it can be rebellious like you said mm -hmm. and also for me as well personally speaking it can be uh you know and and what i've seen in in human experience is that it can be seen as a betrayal mm. and the betrayal mm -hmm. is felt more in those people who have a narcissistic state of mind mm. because then we're getting into areas where the parent views the child as a mirror and an extension of the parent so how dare you be different to me how dare you make that decision no mm. you've got to be like me mm. you can't make your own decisions mm. and that's about control yeah. yeah and and then then if that child does grow up and then depart from family life in whatever way mm. it's an escape basically mm. but if that child then has their own independent freedom it's actually seen as a huge betrayal. And I think that speaks to a little bit of the, the Saas-Fahu dynamic that we see. You know, it's not the entirety of it, but yes, there's a lot of pressure on, on marriage and that's the way to kind of be. But for, for lots of families, that becomes a really pivotal kind of uh, life change for everybody involved, mm. you know. Um, some some mother-in-laws will react in a way that they've never responded because on some level, 
I think their son marrying or, or replacing them, it does feel like a betrayal. Yes, yeah. Um, and an act of separation mm. that is both welcome and unwelcome. Mm. Yeah. And then I just want to say a few words about this line that I picked up. Um, so there was this line that I picked up um, in one of the uh, in one of the chapters, which is where um, the, the it's when the peach comes out and they're in the middle of the sea, but the creatures and James don't know. Mm-hmm. And the sentence reads, um, "They were in the vast black ocean, deep and hungry." Mm-hmm. And it just made me think um, of hungry. What do we think of? So when the ocean's hungry, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like for me, it's like. It, it reminds me of a devouring aspect mm-hmm. and and so if the ocean is devour, devouring it kind of it, it, it's a threat to swallow you up in a way or it'll just gobble you mm-hmm. in some way and um, I'm going to relate this again to the to borderline mm-hmm. personality states um, but there is a, a French psychoanalyst called Henri Ray who uh, talks quite a bit and writes quite a bit about this dilemma and, it, and it's something that spiritual spiritual um, uh, scholars have termed an oceanic feeling. So it, they're, they're in the middle of the sea, they're lost. I think all of us, all of humanity or most of humanity would probably be scared to some extent or have some fear. So this is not to blow it out of proportion. Um, but I mean, being in the middle of the ocean is terrifying to some degree especially for those who don't know how to swim maybe for those who are really good swimmers can tolerate that mm-hmm. but I, I think what I'm trying to I suppose say or make a point here is archetypally on a collective level in the back of the human psyche the the mother ocean you know we, we all have this tendency to want to merge in the mother ocean so going back to the mother womb and being at one being merged with our mother mm-hmm. Um, and that pulls and pushes and tugs against the human desire to actually separate and get out of the ocean. Be, be, because being in the ocean is safety, but being away from the ocean is also safety. Mm-hmm. And both are also terrifying. Mm-hmm. And the, where we see this is in borderline states, because people with borderline personality traits have um, this, you know, they kind of flip between... Uh, you'll 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 see this probably listeners out there if you know anybody personally as well if you've ever seen anybody who you know they're not comfortable with closeness and intimacy whether that's sexual intimacy or emotional Mm -hmm. intimacy but then when you give them space Mm -hmm. or when they have space they feel abandoned they feel so alone so it's like that they don't really know how to be like they can't tolerate closeness mm-hmm. but they can't tolerate being all alone mm-hmm. and and that that's the paradox and that's the, the dilemma that therapists work with and mm-hmm. um, even in the consulting room with the therapist it comes out there too and mm-hmm. um, so on a clinical level mm-hmm. uh, it would it would come up diagnostically as agoraphobia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is the fear of leaving the home that's it, yeah. Fear of leaving the home and then there's also like, you know, fear of crowded yes. places and all of that yeah. stuff. So if you can if you notice, even in the diagnostic criteria, there are there are juxtapositions because it's not just fear of being out in the open, but there's fear of being in crowded places. Mm. And so clinically we physicians would treat it with a benzodiazepine or a beta blocker, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, oh, this person's got agoraphobia, they're having panic attacks, yeah. and that's how a psychiatrist or physician would treat it. Mm-hmm. But my job as a psychoanalyst mm-hmm. um, 
and I, I take this very seriously, is to actually delve in and look at where the what's the root, what's the mm. cause of this. I mean, it's not just giving a pill, mm. and it's not going to go away like that. It's helping the person understand where this has come from, their fear, why they where, why they're afraid mm. um, of, of of going out of the home or being in crowded places. Mm. And would you say that most people are able to eventually identify that for themselves? I think if one is working psychodynamically and they're actually willing to understand themselves more, then I think more than likely they will get to that self-understanding. Mm. Yeah, I think it's work on both parts. Mm. The therapist has to really work hard as well, mm. but then the, the patient also has to be working hard by you know, uncovering things together with the therapist mm. and being willing to explore. Mm. the kind of major themes and things about this particular book and I think a lot of people who read this growing up uh, would have you know um, their opinions or their ideas about the grasshopper or the spider centipede or earthworm would have formed because of this book because they've really given very rich personalities and characters by Roldal in this and I was wondering as I was reading it I was wondering well why did he choose the animals that he chose um, the the creatures that he chose they're not necessarily all animals um, and, well they are animals but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean they're not like the non, I think you mean non they're all yes. non-humans yes they're not all non-humans um, and I thought maybe it would be interesting to look up what you know what the grasshopper for instance mm. symbolizes across different cultures and how that relates to the, the character of the grasshopper, for instance. And I actually, and I didn't know this before I looked this up, but the grasshoppers are a very powerful symbol uh, across humanity and mm-hmm. uh, across time, particularly in Chinese culture where they sort of symbolize fertility because they, they're related to abundance and because they're present when land is fresh and full. And there's something about productivity and vitality that they represent um, and, and production, you know, because they're around crops usually. So they symbolize health and fertility and the way that they move is seen as a symbol of health. They're also very closely connected to, they have that symbolic meaning of prosperity because in, in Chi- ancient Chinese culture that is, uh, many people had pet grasshoppers because they were believed to be reincarnations of dead loved ones. And I'm sure Dr. Farah, you might have something to say about, you know, reuniting with... <laughs> With, with dead loved ones. Dead loved ones. Uh, but, it, you know, it was a musical pet that was um, thought of as, you know, something that would bring prosperity. And there's a lot of emphasis in ancient Chinese culture around the ancestors and, you know, uh, families. And this reminded me that, I don't know if you've seen Mulan. Yes. So there's that. There's, there's, a, there's a Disney version, but there's also like a um, film version of Mulan. It's a recent 2020, I think it was. I, yeah, that one wasn't very nice. I saw oh. that. They changed it significantly. But I remember like the, the Disney, the Disney one, the yes, old one. Uh-huh, yeah. And uh, there's a scene where she's due to meet the matchmaker. And there's an old lady, her grandmother. That's right. Who has a pet cricket and she holds him in a mm-hmm. cage and his name's Cricky. And she 
covers her eyes and crosses a very busy road, hoping that he will help her kind of cross and bring good luck. Um, and she manages to cross it, but there's chaos on the road, right? Like horse carts are colliding into each other, people are falling, every- but she makes it to the other side of the mm-hmm. road and, and the cricket kind of, you know, is just shaking the whole time and he's freaking out. But I thought that it reminded me of that scene and how much mm-hmm. kind of value is attached in ancient Chinese culture to grasshoppers. And mm-hmm. the the great green grasshopper in the, the book, uh, James and the Giant Peach, also has this really calming, soothing kind of wisdom uh, that is very, he's very calm and collected. And, and it's also another thing that he's, his musical would get to that. But it's also historically um, in Athens, in ancient Athens, uh, the symbol of the grasshopper is connected to nobility. No, so nobility. Nobility. Ah. So people would embellish their brooches and combs with golden grasshoppers and wear it in their hair as an indication of noble status. Um, and for indigenous Americans, some indigenous American tribes, sighting a grasshopper means that good news is around the corner. Um, but another kind of connection that, and, and grasshoppers are very rich symbolically, um, because they're also, they're, they're, that's another chapter, we might not get a chance to go into that, but they're also very close to locusts, oh, which mm-hmm. in the Bible and in the Quran kind of have, mm-hmm. are, are pests, right? Mm-hmm. And they're sent down as punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a, an area that is different. They're not the same, of course, they're different things. But the grasshopper has also been linked to creativity and associate, associated with music and art for centuries because, you know, they dance a little as they move and they make their own sounds and it's, uh, it's a, you know, it's like it's dancing to its own music, making it a symbol of creativity. And we know in the book that the grasshopper plays uh, the something he plays with his own body, but he sounds like the violin, mm-hmm. um, and he's this very um, Talent, talented, talented uh, musician. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just something that was a part of the book, but I was surprised to learn that it's actually an association that's existed in music and art for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're assuming that Roald Dahl might have been exposed to that in some way, even though. You know, grasshoppers are also connected to crickets, and we, mm-hmm. at least here in Pakistan, crickets are very common, mm-hmm. and they don't they don't make a very pleasant, <laughs> well, they don't create very pleasant music. Um, it's more of a nuisance, actually. Um, so I was again surprised to learn that. Mm. And uh, the other kind of creature that uh, features, and we'll talk more about him later, but is the centipede. And in ancient, uh, in, in Chinese folklore, it's the enemy of the snake and used to be once carried by travelers to warn against its proximity. Also, centipedes are one of five poisonous animals that make up the five poisons in Chinese medicine. Mm. And uh, it's, not, it's not that those things are necessarily poisonous to us, but it's uh, the purpose of the five poisons depicted on an amulet is to counteract malicious influences Mm. and this is based on the kind of Chinese belief in combating poison with poison Mm. Uh, so they they believe in uh, uh, you know and this is this was a very common practice in um, Mughal times also I don't know if you are familiar with this Dr. Farah but um, kings would habitually kind of have a little bit of poison 
So it's, if, it, if their bodies oh. were kind of accustomed to that, the chances of them being assassinated with poison. And poisoned. Yeah. Mm. So, so they're exposing themselves. It's a bit like the vaccine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is like the vaccine. So exposing yourself to oh. that would make you less vulnerable. Make, well, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> logically. And yeah. Then. yeah. So that's something that Did they Did it would, work? Um, I, I don't know. know. I don't know, but it's 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 a thing in oh. Chinese medicine, so I'm assuming <laughs> that it did. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's uh, that's the centipede, and mm-hmm. we'll get a chance to talk about more of his personality in James and the Giant Peach uh, later in today's episode. There's also the spider, which again is very um, rich as a symbol, right? Mm-hmm. It's there. There are multiple ways of looking at it. It's you know the creative power of the spider because the way it weaves its web, uh, it's it's methodical. It's um, uh, meticulous. Mm-hmm. It's efficient. It does. It gets the job done. It's the spider is also known to be kind of aggressive, um, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that kind of came about as because uh, you know it. It's very methodical about the way it um, traps flies or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where the sort of aggressive association mm-hmm. emerged. Well, the black widow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Meat. <laughs> yeah. I um, think it's the black widow. The black widow yeah. and also the praying mantis. They're, oh, they're yes. Both, both animals who do that. Um, they, they just eat the head of their... Cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> of their partners after they're done meeting. I believe there's also another, I think bees, no, bees don't eat them, but I, I know male bees kind of Make almost more. self-combust after they've mated. Oh, the, the, they lose their, they drop their sting or yeah. something when they... Yeah, 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 they this, lose the sting. Yeah, so it's a bit like a sacrificial, they sacrifice yes. themselves. <laughs> yes. Uh, that, that makes sense because it's the queen bee always, right? Like yeah. it's, a, it's a matriarchy. Um, and uh, yeah, but also spiders' webs are kind of associated with converging towards a central point because that's the way that they're structured. But what struck me the most about spiders symbolically um, mm-hmm. is that you know it symbolizes that kind of ceaseless uh, alternation of forces in the universe: the the creating and the destroying. It comes together, so they create the 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 building and the killing together so they weave mm-hmm. and they kill but they they, nour- they nourish themselves with the killing i like that so that was interesting um it's, it reminded me of that jungian um term I, I think it is jungian the tension of the opposites oh yes yeah. yes so it kind of it, it's a nice way of looking mm-hmm. at the universe and the way it continues to function and our continual kind of transmutation through life um and how death itself nearly winds up the thread of an old life in order to spin a new one. Um, also in uh, India, it, the the sitting of the spider sitting in its web is a symbol of the center of the world, and is hence regarded in India as Maya, the mm-hmm. eternal weaver of the web of illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was also, and I think the other thing that stood out to me uh, when I was reading the book was at one point, I, don't, I can't remember who says it, 
but they say that killing a spider is bad luck. Yeah, not very lucky. Yeah, and I didn't realize that that was again kind of a universal mm. uh, thing because I just thought that was part of like Islamic yes. history mm. and because we're always taught, at least I was growing up, that mm. you're never meant to kill a spider. You just you know put them outside. Yeah. Um, as uh, without harming them, um, as much as possible. So, yeah, that's that's the the spider which also has an interesting personality in the mm. book because she's the one who weaves the, the threads mm. that lift the, the peach. The peach. Um, and yes. Uh, there's also the ladybug who is called the ladybird in America, but ladybug in the UK. Uh, she, she's a, f- a fairly, you know, gentle, loving, kind mm. of amicable creature. And that's exactly what a ladybug symbolizes. They are an omen of good luck and they're associated with the feminine beauty and nobility and they're considered a helpful insect because it likely kills bests. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the last one is the earthworm. And again, he's a really, he's one of the main characters in the book. Well, he certainly stands out. (laughs) He he really does. And I thought it was really interesting because historically, and, and again, I know this is more of a Christian kind of uh, symbolic representation of this, is that historically the worm has been associated with the devil and it continues to have sinister connotations. In the Bible, it denotes degradation and humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, more generally, the legless creature symbolizes that earth or lowly life emerging from the earth, but also darkness. So it's it lives under the ground. Mm. It's kind of, you know, in a very physical sense, beneath our us. Mm. Um, so there's that element. But in Old Norse, it, it means serpent. The word worm can mean serpent or dragon. And that's where the word kind of comes from. And it's tied to magic and mystery. Mm. Um, and while it lives in the earth uh, but it's a, it's a tiny guardian of earthly treasures that's how Norse mythology actually sees it uh, earthworms are hermaphroditic making them an emblem of fertility autonomy and also choice they have both male and female reproductive organs and they determine when to have offsprings within themselves mm. so yeah, they're very self-sufficient, <laughs> oh, but, yes, they, but they also help us out yes. by turning the soil over. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, that those were all the the creatures that main creatures that feature. I know there's also the glowworm and the silkworm, but they don't have a lot of symbolic meaning. Um, the glowworm is associated more with light because that's that's the kind mm. of um, role she has. And also in the story, they don't have very prominent roles themselves or characters. Mm. They're more kind of utility based. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Receding in the background. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that was. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, I, I certainly found that really interesting the symbolism. And I think listeners out there, if you, if any of you can resonate with these creatures in the sense that, um, if it's your spirit animal, you know, for those of you who are interested in your animal personality then please write into us and let us know if you if you want to mm-hmm.
You have a lot of boots, James murmured. I have a lot of legs, the centipede answered proudly, and a lot of feet, one hundred to be exact. There he goes again, the earthworm cried, speaking up for the first time. He simply cannot stop telling lies about his legs. He doesn't have anything like a hundred of them. He's only got forty-two. The trouble is that most people don't bother to count them. They just take his word. And anyway, there is nothing marvellous, you know, centipede, about having a lot of legs. Poor fellow, the centipede said, whispering in James's ear, he's blind. He can't see how splendid I look. In my opinion, the earthworm said, the really marvellous thing is to have no legs, and all that to be able to walk all the same. You call that walking, cried the centipede. You slitherer, that's all you are. You just slither along. I glide, the earthworm, said the earthworm kindly. You are a slimy beast, answered the centipede. I am not a slimy beast, the earthworm said. I'm, I am as useful and much, I am a useful and much loved creature. Ask any gardener you like. And as for you, I am at best, the centipede announced, grinning broadly and looking around the room for approval. So I thought this was a really nice passage to that captures both the centipede and the earthworm's personalities and you know the relationship they share. To me, they were two of the most interesting characters in this book, um, and I had many thoughts about them as I was reading them. So I thought maybe we could spend some time dissecting their personality a little bit mm -hmm. and talking about what we do know about them and what um, what that means psychologically, Dr. Farah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, let's start with what we do know. So for the earthworm, we know that he's blind, he's anxious, and there's a air of hopelessness about everything. Mm -hmm. um, he's pessimistic. For example, he's already sus suspecting that the peach, when it's released, uh, that situation will end badly. Um, and when they do land in the ocean, before they actually find out they're in the ocean, he says, we're probably at the bottom of a coal mine. And he says that very gloomily. Um, we certainly went down, down, and down very suddenly at the last moment. I felt it in my stomach. I still feel it. And when they do find out that they're in the sea, he uh, panics. And he, he cries and he says, mm -hmm. my dear old grasshopper, we are finished. Every one of us is about to perish. I may be blind, you know, but that much I can see quite clearly. And there's something... Um, there's something funny about that, like his, his um, you know, uh, negativity, but I thought it'd be interesting to talk about um, what you think about him, because I was wondering, actually I let you answer that, Dr. Farah, and then, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I, I put in my two cents. Okay. Um, I think I picked up a, I think it's nice how you kind of alluded to some of his thinking patterns, even though you didn't mention the word thinking patterns, because I'd also picked up, you know, there is another place where he says um, they're out to, in the sea, but they can't really see um, that there are sharks. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one other character, I believe it was the glowworm or another character, says, you know, oh, there might be perhaps they're fish, mm -hmm. but the earthworm says, I just know they are sharks. Mm -hmm. That there is a sense of like absolutism in him, in the earthworm. And and so if if we're if I mean if this was a client coming to see us and they had similar thinking patterns, then 
if we were working from a cognitive behavioural um, uh, treatment perspective, mm -hmm. then we would help the person to see that, you know, they're, they're kind of like making quite big predictions or assumptions without really testing the reality out mm -hmm. um, or making assumptions. Um, and it's interesting that later in the same text, of the book, I think it's the centipede who says, and assuming that they are sharks, mm -hmm. so the centipede is kind of correcting the earthworm in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think going back to what you wanted uh, to ask me, pardon my eyes, um, I, I think he, uh, for me, earthworm, if, 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 if I put his thinking styles to one side, and I'll just name a few, mm -hmm. so, you know, for listeners out there as well, if you feel like you're, you also tend to catastrophize events and situations, or you, you're prone to kind of mistrusting your surroundings, and you kind of begin to exaggerate very quickly without waiting, you know, so maybe, maybe predicting what your partner or loved one or parent or uh, sibling, predicting what they're going to say to you, uh, or, or how they're going to behave um, that could be one very small example, a relational example. Um, so I think if we put all of that to one side, the way that I would, the way that I perceive the earthworm is he's kind of addicted to suffering in mm -hmm. a way. Did you go, yeah. on, go on? There's actually a, a passage where mm -hmm. I think it's the ladybug who says he's only happy when he's gloomy. Um, and I, I had like that and I thought I'd ask you what, what sense you make of it and what does that say about his personality? Mm. So so lots of people who come to see me, I mean, um, is that I, I've talked uh, about this with them. If I feel that they also have this kind of masochistic type tendency where um, you know, suffering is something that feels familiar to these people. And I normally use the term, I think you might have heard of it, the joylessness life script. Oh. But is it like transactional analysis? Yes, that's it. Yeah, it's from Eric Burns' mm -hmm. theory, transactional analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, TA is what we say mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. So joylessness is a life script, and in in TA theory, there is you know psychologists who adhere to that kind of have this belief that in the first three years of our lives, we do unconsciously develop a life script of that that we then mm -hmm. um, like follow. Mm -hmm. So so I think for earthworm. Poor earthworm um, does seem to be deeply unhappy, mm -hmm. but I think if we're, I don't know if you were wanting me to comment on this, but he is blind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He can't see. Yeah, he can't. And uh, maybe, th maybe that is part of what plays into this kind of joylessness or, you know, this uh, being addicted to misery thing. But... Um, there was also, you know, like there's a point where, where they find out that they won't actually starve because they have the peach and they can eat the peach. And he says, well, the problem is, the earthworm said, the problem is, well, the problem is that there is no problem. So uh, that's again kind of um, part of this. And I wondered, I don't know, there's obviously a lot more happening here, but do you think that the earthworm could be depressed? Oh, oh, I think that's a given. <laughs> yeah. I think he's not just depressed, poor, poor soul, yeah. but he also has generalised anxiety yes. disorder. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he's definitely yeah. got generalised anxiety disorder, poor thing. Mm. Um, and I 
think that that you know even uh, he's like like you said he's always anticipating catastrophes mm-hmm. from the peach being you know the release ending badly to starving in the sea to suspecting that he would be the first one to be eaten by the sharks because mm-hmm. he's fat juicy and has no bones um he he really does kind of think everything is going to end catastrophically and there's a lot of anxiety around death mm-hmm. um so so that's one of the things that i picked up um mm-hmm. i think the other kind of interesting uh character is the centipede and it's usually they 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 come in together yeah. um and i i was wondering about their relationship and we do know that the centipede is obsessed with his feet and he has a habit of exaggerating <laughs> um and he you know even in the most difficult moments he he's obsessed with his shoes like mm-hmm. his boots and his um when they're about to land on uh, well crash land on the empire state building <laughs> he insists that his boots are polished and when he kind of almost falls off the he does actually fall off the peach and he's rescued the first thing he kind of says is you know at least my my shoes are okay um or my boots are not wet or something mm-hmm. along those lines there's a comment about uh his his shoes um and also i thought one a really iconic kind of uh point in the book was when he when james has just entered the beach and he makes him take undo his shoes mm-hmm. uh before he's allowed to go to sleep so we can talk about his relationship with his feet but what i do notice every time he brings up his feet mm-hmm. is that the earthworm has a reaction mm-hmm. right like so uh he's always you know like oh they're not even 100 feet or there's only 42 uh-huh. of them or like you know he's so obsessed with them um and what's what sense do you make of that dr faya uh envy's coming to my mind mm-hmm. i think it perhaps came in your mind yeah. too yeah well the earthworm doesn't have any mm-hmm. um feet mm-hmm. so of course he's going to um perhaps envy and mm-hmm. envy and he can't see either mm-hmm. so I, i would imagine he's fantasizing a lot about what centipedes feet mm-hmm. and boots and everything can look like but also about um i don't know how the earthworm moves but it, it must be very sluggish and mm-hmm. slow so there is this idea of being perhaps left mm-hmm. back behind in a way mm-hmm. where the centipede can quickly cuz what what do feet and legs do it gives us movement mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. they give us mobility and they um and we do know that the centipede is quite flamboyant and he loves to sing and dance and mm-hmm. he's very like uh, quite talented is quite he? talented um and i i don't know why but i thought of penis envy also uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's something about the legs you know him being so proud of them and and the earthworm being kind of envious of them that's interesting and i thought maybe maybe you have any i don't know if you have anything to say to that mm, i think i think that's I think that's plausible. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of a reach. <laughs> yes. Right. I th- I think it could well, well be mm-hmm. it could be mm-hmm. and I think if we look at it from that perspective uh, and I know we're going to talk about this in a bit mm-hmm. but centipede does have certain feelings and difficulties with his own body image mm-hmm. even though he does have all these mm-hmm. legs and mm-hmm. feet. Mm-hmm. Um and you you can tell us a little bit about what you think he struggles with. in terms of his body mm-hmm. the centipede the centipede yeah uh i think he might have body dysmorphic traits okay. um, um perhaps disorder if i'm going to look at it diagnostically mm-hmm. but um he also has a certain level of obsessiveness so i don't know whether i would really classify it as a as a specific type of ocd mm-hmm. um but 
there is something about um, um, having an appearance because what 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 happens when we boot something up or when we cover something? Mm-hmm. There's something about not being perceived in the world or in the public eye mm-hmm. with in in its rawness or nakedness. But I mean, if we're looking at it from a very crude sexual perspective, then it could also be his. You know, it could be a, it could be a sexual fear, perhaps, because mm-hmm. feet can be very dominating mm-hmm. in in ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to think of. I, I'm very curious. If, if Centipede was on my couch in front of me, mm-hmm. I would ask him about his early childhood and his mother mm-hmm. and how his mother perhaps used her feet. Mm-hmm. Maybe she would stroke him or play with him using mm-hmm. feet. That would be my area of mm-hmm. curiosity. I think that's really interesting. And so would you say that he's not very happy with himself or, or, or would you say that he is? Because he does constantly seek validation. He does, he does, yes, of course. So I think he, he I think his um, persona, like his talents, and he's, he's clearly quite a good artist. Like mm-hmm. he plays music, he's talented, he's very much out there. Um, and he's looking for attention, like the passage you read earlier mm-hmm. when he's looking around the room for mm-hmm. approval. Um, so in that sense, that we could argue, mm-hmm. one could say that he does have histrionic traits when mm-hmm. he's looking for admiration. Mm-hmm. So if we go with that line of thought, then his self-esteem is pretty low. You know, he doesn't have a healthy sense of self. Mm-hmm. And his feet are something that he doesn't feel particularly good about. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to cover cover them up, mm-hmm. you know? And I, and I wonder if there is a sense of being intimidated by his own feet in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I just I think that's really interesting. And um, how do people typically with that kind of personality organization relate mm-hmm. to others? Um, you know, are they are they mean to other people? Do they bully them? Do they not? Um, mm, which personality organization? Histrionic. Histrionic you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Histrionic. Um, the, the, the main flavour, and I'm just mm. I'm just trying to scan my brain up here with <laughs> Sorry for dropping that question on <laughs> No, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm used to it, Father. I'm <laughs> fine, you know I allow you to do that. Um I'm scanning my brain up here with, with, with my experiences so far and what I've learned really from, from life so far and from mm. my clinical work. I, I think the main flavour with somebody who's organized psychically at a histrionic level, mm-hmm. they they drain a lot of energy mm-hmm. from people mm-hmm. so even if they might not say anything it it, it can feel like that they're, they're sucking your energy or a sense of you know a, a bit like vampires sucking blood mm-hmm. out of you really mm-hmm. and it, it's not that they're meaning to in a sadistic way mm-hmm. although some people who also have narcissism in them could be very sadistic i feel the centipede actually is quite afraid because when earthworm Mm -hmm. when the earthworm says uh, i think he mentions that there are sharks or something at one in one point of the story and centipedes trying to discount it and Mm -hmm. saying no no it's not that but he he kind of he's 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 afraid in some way he plays i think on they both play off each other's fears i feel Mm -hmm. but the difference is that centipede uses his talents and Mm-hmm. his his charm because he is a charming mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. he's not this gloomy 
depressed, dark, whereas earthworm is much more in the darker mm -hmm. bit for me. And, and I think so, so I think the main flavor of someone with this personality organization, when you're with that person, mm -hmm. you're going to feel very drained because they'll be looking at you for admiration, for attention. Mm -hmm. They will want to use you as a mirror mm -hmm. for their own self-esteem. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It does, it does. And I know it's a slightly unrelated, but I do think he has a slightly sadistic kind of quality to him. You know, every time he makes the earthworm, he gets a kick Aww. out of making him miserable. Mm -hmm. Like when the cloud men are kind of uh, attacking them and um, the, uh, the earthworm asks them, do you think they would eat us? And, he, and the centipede says, they would eat you. Yeah, uh, the centipede answered grinningly, they would cut you up like a salami and eat you in thin slices. And the poor earthworm <laughs> began to quiver all over with fright. So there is there is this, you know, uh, playful quality. Playful, yeah. yeah. They, they they play off each other's fears. I feel they do. And but I also I also noticed that uh, the centipede is a bit of a bully. He Aww. he really does kind of constantly put people around mm -hmm. him down, whether it's making fun of their ears, or you know about the glowworm. He says she isn't really a glowworm at all. Glowworms are never worms. They are simply lady fireflies without wings. And then proceeds to call her a lazy beast. Mm -hmm. And he's often quite rude. Uh, like when there's uh, when the, the silkworm and the spider are spinning thread to secure the um, you know, the seagulls and the peach and, and fly out of the uh, ocean, he, he kind of yells down and says, spin, silkworm, spin. Uh, you great lazy fat fat lazy brute faster <laughs> oh, faster or we'll throw you out to the sharks so he's not really doing much but he's just you know he's making them feel quite miserable mm -hmm. but and, and being in control no i agree with that yes so he is kind of a bully but like you said he is quite charming i didn't i didn't experience any feelings of um anger or resentment or hatred or like i wasn't like oh he's so evil mm -hmm. as a character he, there's something quite playful and charming and uh, interesting about his banter, uh, yeah. even even though it is quite rude and mean often, yeah. and borders on bullying. Mm. So yeah. Um, and also he, um, you know, when when the cloudmen attack, well, well, he actually starts the exchange yes. uh, by making faces at them and calling them names and oh yes um what did you think of that like what sense would you make of that if a client came to you and they uh they said they had something and they started to they had started they had put themselves in a potentially risky situation um, by initiating mm -hmm. it oh i would explore with them like i would explore with them you know what was what were their thoughts and feelings at that time what their motivation was mm -hmm. things like that i would explore together mm -hmm. with them but uh, it's there's an enticing quality to it mm -hmm. you know like and, and you kind of have to be gallant in some way right mm -hmm. so you, you have to take a risk it's risky because you don't know how what you don't know what reaction you're gonna get mm -hmm. um and we, we we could we could infer that he's centipede did this um to arouse fear in earthworm mm. and he does put other people at risk right like it's not just himself that he's putting mm -hmm. at risk there's other people on the the on beach, the beach. Oh, yeah yeah so in one way centipede could be 
So it's a bit like this. Mm -hmm. We could think of it like the earthworm is addicted to suffering. Mm -hmm. In, in that sense, like that, he has to be unhappy and mm -hmm. you know depressed. A bit like Eeyore from mm -hmm. Winnie the Pooh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's who I was comparing Earthworm mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. um, and the cent and centipede has more of a he has more for me. He has more of an antisocial <laughs> personality mm -hmm. only because he's got that outward. You know, I mean, he could fool people because yeah. he's so like you know charming mm -hmm. and he's. He, he has the gift of the, mm. what did they say? The talents. The gift of the gab as mm. well, like he's verbose, mm. he, you know, he's... <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he's more of like a person who is, um, who, who knows how to like pick, pick on something. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's more, while the, whilst the earthworm is addicted to suffering and joylessness, centipede might be addicted to actually uh, not adventure per se. Mm -hmm. Well. It could be mm -hmm. because he does like the he does enjoy the adventure of the peach throughout, mm -hmm. but addicted to and looking for a word where it's like you know how people thrill seeking. Yes, mm -hmm. that's it, Fatima. Yeah, you know, like people like to bungee jump mm -hmm. or do, do where they're I'm on the brink of death, but mm -hmm. not me. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. final place that I'd like to pay attention to is the part in the story where James is introduced to the centipede, the earthworm, Miss Spider and so on and so forth, all the different creatures. And this, this passage that I'm going to read out really highlighted something for me. So it, it goes as follows. It seems that almost everyone around here is loved, said James. How nice this is. Not me, cried the centipede happily. I am a pest and I'm proud of it. Oh, I'm such a shocking, dreadful pest. Here, here, the earthworm said. But what about you, Miss Spider? asked James. Aren't you also much loved in the world? Alas, no, I am not loved at all. And yet I do nothing but good. All day long I catch flies and mosquitoes in my webs. I'm a decent person. So this passage really spoke to me about James's perception of love and we know that he came from uh he came from a home um where there was no affection there was emotional abuse and physical abuse and he all has longed to be with other children on a beach we know that this is his fantasy growing up and one of the ideas that I really want to speak about is this idea of when one projects their own sort of um, fantasies and wishes onto the other person. And w what we don't have in our own lives, um, you know, there are so many of us on this planet who are deeply unhappy with the way their lives are, their situations, or, you know, regrets perhaps about past life choices and decisions. Um, and it, it's very easy to project our own wishes and desires onto a group of people perhaps, um, or a certain person and one very prime example is social media and we know that a lot of people um, who are Instagram users or TikTok users and other platforms online and many of the patients that I see in my consulting room also um, speak a lot about going on Instagram and uh, feeling quite envious and feeling quite emotionally kind of off and disturbed when looking at people that they're following, their profiles. Um, it might be a celebrity or it might be, you know, a non-celebrity, but somebody who's 
who's you know posting kind of these lovely beautiful pictures perhaps of them of their families of traveling or whatever the life is whatever's happening in their life and for me it speaks about how um how skewed that is because uh photographs for me are very deceptive um i've come to a point in my life now where i don't actually hold a very strong philosophy of 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 capturing the moment i think for me it's about experiencing it in real time and lodging that memory in my mind if it's with a loved one a special moment um whereas once upon a time my younger self did enjoy taking pictures although i was not grow you know although um i wasn't bro- brought up in the generation of selfies or anything like that that was that's that's way kind of beyond my, my generation uh, we didn't have technology per se and mobile phones had just you know be, been launched and even the internet so um so this is a, a very new new thing you know with with taking selfies or or taking pictures of whatever and then posting them on facebook or instagram and you know some some people take it stretch it really far you know some people kind of take pictures of what they're eating whether they're dining out in a restaurant and that they're, they're posting the picture up and then you know so so i think i suppose my point here is that uh, um instagram is a really good example of the current state of affairs and the culture that we're living in where you know um it, it's very misleading um when you're looking at other people it's very deceptive because you don't really know what's going on behind those photographs uh, some people like to put up a persona or a public image of having a, a wonderful happy you know satisfactory life whereas that might not be the case you know they might be deeply depressed people but want to live out this you know fantasy life that's one way of looking at it and that's not to say that you know that social media does not have its uses of course i mean there are you know lots of healthy people who want to be uh, genuinely interested in family and friends lives but I, but i think much of the time for me it seems to be quite unhealthy especially when people are going on for hours in the day or they you know not able to get to sleep at night perhaps and they're scrolling on social media and i think it just sparks a lot of negative um impulses or thoughts in oneself especially if you're already kind of experiencing depression or anxiety um and i suppose on that note just as we finish with today's episode how about listeners out there if you feel comfortable to please write into us um perhaps you could reflect on yourself as a social media user maybe you use instagram or facebook or tiktok and maybe reflect on what it is that you might be projecting out there um and any other thoughts that you might have um you know anonymously write you can you know write into us um and we will um consider it we'll give you a response back thank you for listening to this episode of our series on the pakistani couch we really hope that you found our episode to be meaningful and instructive we hope you'll feel able to write in to us either with your dreams for psychological interpretations and alongside that any symbolic insights that we might have about your dreams your dreams will be anonymized and any personal details won't be shared 
We also hope you'll be able to give us any feedback that you might have to further improve our series and any questions or comments that you want to share with us. We're very responsive, so when you do reach out, you'll receive a reply within 24 to 48 hours. There are two main ways that you can write into us. The first is to email us on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com and you might also wish to send us a tweet at on the pack couch. Until next time, take good care of yourselves.